You're listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast, illuminating the unheard stories of today's top leaders in impact with your host, Gino Borges. Welcome back, everyone, to the Poetry of Impact podcast. Today, we welcome Rihanna Natu, founder and CEO of Spectrum Impact. In this episode, Rihanna takes us all over the globe from her whimsical move to New Orleans from New York her family's roots in Africa and immigration to Canada and to Bolivia, where she experienced the true impact of grassroots efforts. Rihanna sees circumstance as opportunity. She sees impact not as a moral framework, but as an opportunity to redefine and align incentives with our system, reconciling how we can use capitalism as a force for good while also accounting for its exploitative past. Rihanna shares how living in the cognitive world was simply not doing it for her anymore and how she's learning to live well in the moment. So with that, drop in and enjoy the episode with Rihanna Natu. Welcome, Rihanna. It's really great to have you today. Thanks for having me. So Rihanna, share with me a little bit about uh, where you're at. I think it's very unique. You're probably the first interviewee that is um, down in New Orleans. And <laughs> so I know that, you know, New Orleans is a very unique place. Um, and from my understanding, you moved there from the Northeast. But take yeah. us through a little bit of the inspiration that led you from the Northeast to go to New Orleans, uh, the type of work you're doing down there right now, and so on. Yeah, happy to. Um... It's so interesting. I mean, we're a bit of a walking cliche, to be honest. We have the we had the 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 moment and the incredible privilege uh, to use the pandemic as an opportunity to just do some personal reevaluation. My um, my partner and I had been in New York uh, for the longest time. We had recently moved to Michigan for uh, his PhD, and he was wrapping that up. And we were in the middle of the pandemic and sort of thinking like. What, what are we doing? <laughs> How do we want to live our lives? What's important to us? And it turns out that what is really important to us is uh, being able to go outside almost the whole year. That's pretty important, apparently. As a Canadian, that's probably like sacrilege to say, but <laughs> being able to go outside all year round and, um, and not having to share 700 square feet. And so we, we came down to New Orleans. Um, we're big music people. My partner used to be a musician. Um, who doesn't love really good food? We came down saying it would be a six-month jaunt, and I would say it took about three weeks before we had completely abandoned our New York plans, and we're already starting to think about where we could buy a home and what neighborhood we wanted to be in. Um, and it, it's actually, uh, uh, while it feels kind of cliche, it wasn't totally without sort of thought and purpose. I think we had we were both in in points in our career. Um, where we had the opportunity to be completely flexible and mobile. And we've been thinking a lot about what community meant. And as a New Yorker, that's a hard thing to come by. Uh, it, it is sort of a, it doesn't have to be, but it, it's easily an individualistic sort of life. And I would say New Orleans is the counter opposite that um, what, what keeps people in good spirit and connected is their passion and compassion for one another. Um, and that's sort of related to sort of what brought me here professionally. So I run an impact investing consulting firm called Spectrum Impact. And it sort of follows 12-ish years of a lot of error making, quite frankly. I sort of had (laughs) incredible roles in incredible places, um, all that wanted to do impact investing in a systemic, sustainable, long-term way. And at each place, hit a wall at one point in different ways, but hit a wall at one point. And so Spectrum Impact is really about trying to distill frankly, you know, 12 years of what not to do and bring some of that 
learning to folks that are approaching this journey for the first time. Um, that is, I think, amplified by the scarcity of capital that we're facing, the way communities have been devastated by the pandemic. Uh, and so it's it's not a it's not a deep connection, but it's not lost in me that sort of the personal move to a place where we can have impact kind of follows a professional move to do the same. So why impact in particular? Was there anything um that you don that dawned on you at some point in life where you realized like, yeah, I can have a career. Um, I can do X, Y, Z with um, the world of financial capital in a one-dimensional um, way. Uh, but was there a moment sort of a truth where all of a sudden the coin dropped and you're like, ah, you know, for the most part, you know, here I am a young, young woman. It's like, I have a lot of life left and I can't yeah. imagine doing it any other way besides this way. No, oh, I love that. So I am, um, I'm a first generation Canadian. My parents were immigrants from East Africa. And so when I was growing up, like a lot of first generation kids, there was a couple of career paths that were made available to me. I wouldn't say that we were an explorative people at the time, I think it was about surviving in this brave new land. Uh, and so I had thought all the way up until the end of college that I wanted to be a lawyer, but I don't know that I ever really wanted to be a lawyer. I just thought I wanted to be a lawyer. So I got a chance um, while I was doing my undergraduate degree in Canada at Queen's to spend six months in Bolivia working for a renewable energy NGO. And uh, I hate saying this because it does sound quite cliche, but it was truly revolutionary. I mean, it just, it was an opportunity and a moment in time to see how local grassroots efforts actually change people's preferences um, and presumptions. And so this incredible energy, renewable energy NGO was actually trying to move people away from cookstove solutions for, for all that that does to uh, the health and wealth of your family and move them towards more renewable sort of home cooking, home cleaning, home care solutions. Uh, and so then I came back from Bolivia, um, just completely on a different path, came to the United States to do grad school, specifically in international development with a focus on development finance and got my, got my first job. My first job was at the UN Capital Development Fund and happened to be um, deployed, if you will, to the countries where my parents were from. Absolute fluke. Didn't know if I would ever get a chance to visit given um, the, the tough conditions with which they left. Um, and so got to spend true time in Tanzania and Uganda and at the UN capital development fund, the work there was, um, uh, providing project finance to, uh, local farmers, business owners, co-ops in the energy and energy and agriculture sector. Uh, and it was very transaction focused and very deal focused. And at that moment, I think I always wanted to sort of use capital to try and do some of these things and the idea of working within markets really resonated. I was surprised to find that the transaction level impact, which is very high because you get to see incredible progress in a very real, very direct way, didn't actually do it for me. I think I kept focusing on the ability to work at the systemic level. Why is it that the UN Capital Development Fund is one of seven organizations in the region just structuring finance for people that are deeply bankable, but just not considered so? traditionally? Why, why are we doing that on an ad hoc basis? Why aren't we talking about deploying capital for good? Why isn't three of the largest banks in the nation in this particular industry or sector? And so I actually went the opposite way. I feel like I hear a lot of my peers so eloquently described starting in, in private investments and trying to go um, to systems level stuff. I actually started in the development finance world and still tried to go to systems level stuff. So I think all of my work after that kind of reflects the hope, goal, dream, 
of translating investments for social good and vice versa. I think it has to be a two-way dialogue. I think uh, the most successful movements that we've seen in modern history have people from both ends of the spectrum, no pun intended, coming to the middle, not just movement in a in a linear fashion. And so that I think deeply resonates with me and continues to remind me why changing people's hearts and minds around investments and development is is uh, equally important. So you mentioned about the conditions your parents uh, left under. Um, can you share a little bit more yeah. about what those conditions were like and um, where in East Africa in particular? Yeah. So my dad was born in Kampala in Uganda, but raised in uh, the Congo. And my mom was from Tanzania. And my dad's family was sort of split with a pretty significant presence in Uganda. And they were, both sides of my family were running and owning businesses during the time when Idi Amin came into power. And so in, in that sort of terrible chapter of East African history, um, the members of the Indian diaspora just left, were advised to leave, were forced out to leave, their assets were seized. Um, and it, what, it's kind of incredible about the way that both of my parents made homes, uh, or their parents rather, made homes in East Africa, is that it was quite um, it was quite embedded in in local communities. Like they had their neighbors would work with them. They went into business together. They co-managed each other's stores and movie theaters, and they sent their mm. kids to school together. It wasn't hearing their wonderful stories, which are always stories, but hearing their wonderful stories didn't reflect, I think, the kind of problem. And I say that, I say that in quotes, uh, that I think that, that the Idi Amin was trying to solve that, that in, in truth, these communities were quite integrated and quite connected to one another. So they were forced out. Um, uh, they came to, my dad's family came to Canada. My mom's family went to the United Kingdom before they came to Canada, um, with very little. And we belonged to a religious community that, uh, negotiated some pretty critical ties with the Canadian government. Um, and so my relatives, all of my relatives had a chance to sort of start over, um, in Canada. My, both of my parents were young teens, uh, and built kind of an amazing life for us there. Uh, part of the reason why, despite how long I've lived in the U.S., Canada will always be home. It always sort of has my heart for for all of that. Um, but it was they they uh, their journey to this has not had an insignificant impact, I think, in in where I like to spend my time and sort of the connection that I have with East Africa specifically. So, what does an Indian diaspora look like? Uh, for I mean, the, uh, first of all, how how did um, so most people would probably not realize that Indians uh, were living in East Africa, for, right. first of all. And then uh, explain to us uh, and explain to the audience about what in your parents' context and what you saw at large or what you've heard uh, orally and what you've read as well in terms of what that diaspora actually looked like and felt yeah. like. Yeah. Um we should have invited them to talk with us actually. <laughs> <For> <laughs> they have some yeah. pretty great stories. So, so, so I think during my grandparents' time, uh, there really was this movement um, into East Africa to build businesses. A lot of, a lot of what you actually see in the United States uh, around the same time, right? Like corner stores, here it was gas stations, there it was corner grocery stores, movie theaters, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and there was, I think, that that transition from from India, Pakistan to East Africa was really about business opportunity. It was about economic opportunity more than anything else. And there was just great 
opportunity, I think, to create commerce in, in East Africa, where they had mostly been um, almost exclusively an agriculture sector. And so I think the way that they describe their time is very, very of the community. Look, I've never heard my parents say um, that they are from India. I've only ever heard them say that they are from East Africa because truly they were born on the land. And I think considered that way of living truly germane to who they are as people. It's a very community-based approach. Uh, it was a very, um, my mom says all the time, she said, we had such a good life. And I think what she meant was your family was deeply critical. You invested in your education. You gave back to your community. Um, that that it didn't feel, I think, from her perspective, there was deep sort of racial division in the way that it had been painted, that your neighbors were your neighbors. You all just sort of took care of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do think that that, um, the hardest part about being kicked out, I think. So, so the Ugandans actually did have to leave. The Tanzanians and the Kenyans sort of went as part of the community with the assumption that that these these kinds of policies were going to sort of trickle across East Africa, which luckily did not happen at scale, although they certainly did happen in some places. And I think that they, you know, when we when I started working in East Africa so many years after my parents had become Canadian citizens, um, there was some deep um, sadness, I think. Uh, around that part of their history that they that really was home to them and for a certain period of time it wasn't allowed to be anymore and I think it wasn't until I was a little bit older that I truly appreciated what that means when you're sort of told your home is not your home anymore Um, and I think that they are beyond sort of grateful and blessed to be Canadian you probably couldn't find more Canadian people than my Canadian parents but you know it's it, it is kind of an amazing moment right you sort of have a like a sliding doors moment where you're like it could have gone a totally different way we do have a lot of um extended family that actually did go back um and create recreate their businesses and recreate their homes so lots of people that are near and dear to us that are actually back in 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 Kampala back in Nairobi um, and, and living the way that they did before, completely integrated with the community, often starting businesses and funds that are investing in the community. Um, but it, it is, it, even when I'm there, it is sort of hard to truly simulate what they went through because it's um, so far outside of the incredible privilege that I've experienced, to be honest. So in, I find it interesting because um, earlier you touched on community resiliency and yeah. then, um, you know, this move from New York, which is sort of like the secular exhibit for disconnected yeah. modern <laughs> existence, right? Yeah. I mean, sort of everybody walks, uh, like they live in their boxes and then when, right. even when they're walking down the street, sort of everybody's just sort of like tuned in their own little uh, psychic uh, arena. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, in New Orleans, uh, you have a taste of what a taste of what you're talking about that your parents mm-hmm. experienced. And then you said your extended family actually went back after mm-hmm. this harrowing experience. It goes to, to uh, for me, when I hear that, I'm just fascinated with this concept of when a place becomes or space becomes a place, right? Mm-hmm. And it feels like home and origin of home. Um, gosh, it's like, there's so much here to explore is like, now, how is that uh, reality and understanding of uh, how we organize ourselves influencing what you're doing now, Um, you know, sort of your outward self and how you're showing up on a day-to-day basis. And then 
there's a twist with the work you're doing um, as well as because there's a sort of recognition of previous exploitations Mm -hmm. um, as a result of doing good. So it's not just like doing good in a vacuum and pretending history doesn't exist. Right. So I'm curious about how it sort of all intersects your personal history, your awareness of your extended family, returning home, and then this uh, larger lens on looking at the whole thing from um, a reconciliation perspective. Yeah, it's um, it's a great question. It's uh, so I think there's a few things that are going on here that obviously I haven't spent any material time thinking about until you just asked that question. So this is all this is all coming pretty raw. But I think so. I think the first thing that has been deeply informative around the choices that I've made around sort of professional pursuit and passion are around the ability to have a choice. So my parents didn't, they, they were victims of circumstance, uh, but their parents were victims were, were uh, not victims, excuse me, but benefited from opportunity. So it's just kind of this amazing sort of just to, shows you how, how determinative history can be. My grandparents had deep opportunity to build better lives for themselves in East Africa. And they did. My parents had to leave that home and start over in Canada, which they did. I left my home and made a home here in the U.S., which I did. And so the idea that that those decisions, the decision of where you are can deeply influence the kind of impact that you have is pretty deeply ingrained. Mm-hmm. One of the things that was happening in New York was uh, in no way did I think that I wasn't, that my work wasn't meaningful because I was in New York. Um, more than half of my heart, I think, will always live there. I, especially, I think when you when you spend your twenties in New York, it does something to your brain chemistry. <laughs> you just sort of never get out of that. But but I think what was really missing was that it it felt like I was the impact that I was having was on a kind of cerebral level and not a personally felt level. And so yeah. one of the things that happened when we came to New York is we just saw what people meant to each other. So this is a town that has been ravaged by natural disaster. Um, It is a town that has not insignificant poverty, corruption, and poor infrastructure. It is a town that is reliant, for example, our main energy source uses energy from energy technology from the 70s and 80s. This is not a place uh, where, where systems deeply take care of people. People take care of people. And that, I think, is very reflective of how my parents survived in Canada. They took care of each other, how I survived in New York, people took care of me and why I want to be in New Orleans. I want to take care of people. And so there, and and that is never one-sided, right? Like in taking care of people, you yourself are taken care of. And so there definitely was this moment um, where it just felt like being able to do that on a personal level needed to match the professional commitment. There's also this Seemingly contradictory, but to me, very, very realistic sense that we live in the systems that we live in for reasons, history, dominoes, chance, luck, name it. But I find a great amount of power in thinking about repurposing systems versus um, trying to toss the table, if you will. So one of the things that I love about impact investing is that it does its best to take a very pervasive, very strong very power-based system, and that is capitalism, and use what works in it, which is a high degree of efficiency and a high degree of directiveness for good. Um, and what what the challenge is, is to change why you do it and how you do it. But the what is actually still the same. The markets are the markets. The investment ecosystem 
and the financial ecosystem at large works the way that it works. And so what, what is um, way more effective and empowering to me is to try and work within systems. I have never been very good at, um, I, I don't know that I would call myself very imaginative, imaginative, maybe. <laughs> never been very good at like, gosh, let's just burn this thing down and recreate it. And I don't know that there are so many people out there that are actually advocating for that, but I do think that there's hard and important work to, to work within the opportunities or the crises that we're given. And so that I think deeply shapes the work. I mean, you very thoughtfully asked, you know, how do you reconcile a, a deeply exploitative system, which it totally is with, with the work that we're trying to do. And I think we are seeing in modern history uh, for really the first the first time, I think, I, I think that there, I think that that's honestly true. We're starting to see less of a distinction, a zero sum game between impact and per, and profit. I think for the for the first time in recent history, we're starting to believe that maybe, maybe, maybe these things can coexist. And in fact, can serve each other. And so, to me, there is a great deal of urgency in trying to bring people to the table now because I think we'll miss this window. About this whole idea about working within systems, and yeah. um, first of all, how how do you do it? Um, yeah. Like, what have you learned in terms mm-hmm. of sort of the essence of working within a system? So essentially, this is your personality to some extent. It's like, hey, mm-hmm. like this is my place within the spectrum of like mm-hmm. burn it down to all the way on the other side is being yep. the system, and yep. you're somewhere in between, migrating yeah. between the two poles. Yeah. And there's different ways to sort of think about this. One is that obviously, obviously the system is where the structural power exists and often it's invisible. Um, it's, it's invisible. It's tucked in ideology. It's tucked in the, you know, reification of patterns, uh, temporal and spatial patterns and linguistics. And it's very deep and entrenched. Uh, and then there's also this notion of how to bring awareness to those very things. Um, and I'm just curious, curious about my experience is that people don't give up power involuntarily. So the people that are vested in that system, um, even to some extent, a certain amount of awareness, they still won't move because the inertia of the vestedness of it, whether it's through legacy or whether it's just like short term um, thinking. Um, or just frankly, that f- fear to change, um, yeah, and just the fear to change, uh, even though the other side may be much more rewarding and beneficial, not only to themselves and their families, but to culture at large. And so, to sort of walk us through the how part on how you do it. Yeah. So, I think the a lot of what I've heard in this space quite recently, actually, within the last sort of two years, um, has been about has been rooted in shame. So this idea that if you are a wealthy person uh, in the United States, if you're a high numbers individual, if you've made your money through industry that in the 70s and 80s, we considered perfectly acceptable, shame, shame, shame. And we re- we require that you atone. And while I think there is some shame that almost every single one of us that has any privilege probably needs to just accept and appreciate a smidge, I don't find that tactic helpful at all. I think that there is great opportunity in redefining and then aligning incentives. So when we work with clients that sort of say, look, we made our money in oil. And uh, if, if you are in fossil fuels right now, 
you actually had a pretty good quarter, <laughs> despite uh, despite how vulnerable those investments made your portfolio at the height of at the height of COVID. You know, in the last quarter, they've been pretty great because people got out. Um, we won't sit there and say shame on you for making money, but we might sit there and say, you know, from a portfolio perspective, a deep investment into anything finite increases your volatility. That there's just you are relying so heavily on something that we can quantify as disappearing. You're relying heavily in something that if we continue to invest in, will make other parts of productive society disappear. For example, if you uh, are invested in fossil fuels, but you're also invested in highly uh, consumer products, sort of text, uh, technologies or textiles, you uh, rely almost exclusively in the latter on labor. And if you are relying on a labor force in Bangladesh, for example, that is suffering deeply because of pollution, then your fossil fuel investments directly compromise your consumer goods investments. That at the end of the day, people and planet fuel business. It's almost that simple, right? That you, if you are a successful company, you either have really great technology built by people, you have a really great labor force fueled by people, or you have resources that you extract from the ground. And so if we're not thinking about extending the life of and improving the life of people or planet, it's actually just investment folly. I mean, you just like probably made a mistake in your Excel spreadsheet. I and mean, that's almost how simply we try and communicate it so that people realize that this is not about having some sort of moral compass or this is not about atoning. This is about recalibrating your incentives because the world that we live in right now values these things differently. And we do, to be honest, I think get a little farther in conversations when we take a moral shaming out of the equation and talk instead about, is there any framework where we could all be on the same page? It's not perfect. It doesn't always work, but I think it works more than we're willing to give it credit sometimes. And I, it's not as sensational as canceling somebody on Twitter. I know that, but it is long-term and it is about getting on the same page in terms of our incentives. So a part of this, how is, is that we often like to see, um, you know, fruits of our labor, right? Um, you know, it's whether somebody has a long time preference or a short time preference. So short time preference would be canceling somebody on Twitter, uh, canceling somebody out at a university that you don't yep. like. Mm -hmm. da, 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 and just sort of protesting in the streets and then everybody going home. Mm -hmm. But but long time preference that you're talking about essentially um, for material change. How do you do, go about it on a day to day basis to just like like mark that you're actually moving the needle? And like, I mean, how do you actually know you're actually moving the needle besides you feel good about what you're doing or through a cerebral context or I mean, at a somatic experiential level, like how do you know it's actually working? Such a phenomenal question. We, I would say the most difficult part of our engagements when we're talking with investors that are, that are predominantly in the public markets is around this time horizon piece, actually. So, you know, companies are rewarded or punished on a quarterly basis. And we're sort of saying, hey, make this investment. And in two and a half years, you might see some benefit that we we all of a sudden have this moment where where people just sort of look at us and say like that's not how we reward in this particular ecosystem that I, I get it i understand why but that's not how we actually assess and then reward value mm. one of the things and so i just just had that conversation this morning actually so your question is 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 super timely one of the things that we try and 
think about, or at least talk about in the work that we do is to create a little bit of distinction between the parts of the system that are essential and efficient and the parts of the system that we just got wrong the first time. And this idea of time horizons is, is something that we put in the latter bucket that we created, let's take the public markets, for example, right? Stocks and bonds. We created this quarterly system in order to be able to assess value and then reap some benefit. We need some sort of income in our investment portfolio. We need to know things are working. Great, great, great. I think I would argue, and I would no way be alone, um, I'm, I'm parroting words of smarter thinkers, that that was a mistake, that we never should have started to operate on that system. And that system is an accounting exercise more than anything else, that we don't actually need a quarterly value to have value. Even if that's true, I think shifting that kind of behavior is deeply difficult because that's not how the system works. So in our work, and this applies to uh, me as Rahana and then Spectrum as the firm, it's sort of like if a tree falls in the forest, did it actually did it actually happen? We think that way about impact measurement and management. So if you didn't, if you say that you're in the space around delivering actual impact capital I, and you have no intention of tracking that, then as far as we're concerned, that was never an explicit and intentional commitment on your part. It was PR or language or whatever it wants to be. And I think that's because the hardest work in our space comes from that. It comes from trying to figure out the capital C change that you want to see, which scares the crap out of people, right? We have these 17 SDGs. They're big and lofty and beautiful and seem deeply daunting. Uh, and so, yes, of course, nobody wants to say like, I'm targeting SDG five because it's like, oh my God, how am I going to fix gender equality across the planet? That's a hard thing to do. So it requires a little bit of bravery and it requires rigor. Uh, the actual setting of milestones and using metrics requires you to say, I am going to put time and energy into figuring out if I've actually done anything. We apply that as, at a firm level. So when we started, uh, we set metrics for ourselves about the types of clients that we were going to try and get from an AUM perspective. So are we talking little fish or big fish? And the types of clients we were going to get from a reputational perspective. Are these people that have gone out in the market and said, impact investing is crap? Or are the people that have gone out in the market that have said, investment ecosystems are not supposed to deliver value? And we've kind of held our feet to the fire to target increasingly each year more and more of those folks. It doesn't always happen because we're a small firm. We're not always a good fit from a practical perspective, but we are doing our best to insert ourselves into some of those conversations. And I would say for everything that we are doing, there are colleagues out there that are doing it tenfold. The pre-distribution initiative is one such effort in our ecosystem that is literally taking the system by the neck and saying, absolutely not. By hook or by crook, we are going to force you to think about things in other ways. So sometimes our value is just propping up uh, efforts like that, or the work that Candida Group is doing, or the work like any of that kind of stuff, where we have an opportunity to shine a light on other folks that are actually disrupting the ecosystem. It's a pretty, it's a pretty easy way for us to demonstrate our value in in very real time. And distinct, uh, making that distinct that distinction between attribution and contribution, which is essentially what you and I are talking about, having to name and own the success versus helping to move the needle a little bit. It's going to be something that I think as an ecosystem we're going to have to contend with. Are we all okay with? Uh, being a tiny drop in the ocean or does everybody need the ocean to be named after them? So how do you do that tracking? So I spent um, a fair amount of time um, in my mid thirties doing a lot of like uh, desert survival uh, courses <laughs> and doing a lot of solo quests. And, and I went through a lot of uh, rites of passage work and 
one of the things that we were taught was um, when like doing animal tracking and like tracking animals. So you talk about tracking yep. the outcomes of capital. And, mm-hmm. um, and I remember one of the lessons was that, was that when you lose the footprint, so it starts off with the footprints. And so I'm just using this as a metaphor. And so think about how this can be a metaphor for, for no one wanting to do the tracking or those that are doing the tracking. And I remember that once you lose the footprints, you have to go back to, as like, okay, well, what do you do once you lose the footprints? Well, mm-hmm. you got to go back to when you saw the footprints um, and then you have to evaluate from there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of an interesting concept and it sounds so simple. And mm-hmm. yet you have to have a certain amount of resilience and diligence to actually be determined to do that. It's kind of, but that's in a physical context. Mm. And um, now all of a sudden you're going from this analog world to the sort of the digital world uh, and, and, and semiotic constructs of tracking semiotic constructs, which are mm-hmm. imposed on the physical world mm-hmm. and that are used for sense-making uh, on the physical world. So if you're tracking your climate, you're tracking gender, eventually there needs to be some physical referent that says, oh yes, that actually did happen. Um, So curious on what you do in terms of following through and when like Mm. you do get lost trying to track, where Mm. do you go and how do you respond to that situation where all of a sudden you're in this liminality of like, oh shit, we were, we, we were, we knew exactly where this was going and now we just Mm -hmm. lost the footprints. Totally, which is, I think, definitionally imperative to exploration, which we are still in a phase of. We There are days, you know, I have to remind myself sometimes that impact investing in its current manifestation is only about 12 or 13 years old. So there are days when you feel like you've been doing this forever, but in in, in the course of history, it's it's like a, a fraction of a fraction of a drop, which is sobering to, <laughs> to sort of say out loud to yourself sometimes. So I would say that that in in exploration, there needs to be a tolerance for that. And I would say one of the things that we got wrong as an industry, I'll, I'll, I'll pull from how we support clients on this, because I think it's the most tactical way that I can think about it. Mm-hmm. When we got started in this industry, we were very fixated as a community on intention. We were not so focused on the rigor behind that. I think what we were looking for were pledges, commitments. Um, a little bit of posturing to say that it was okay and appropriate to use capitalism as a force for good. There was a little bit of like validating that was happening. And that period of validation kind of went on a little longer than I think any of us anticipated, which means that by the time we started to get, let's call it looks, uh, we didn't actually have frameworks and systems in place to demonstrate that it was working. So there was like an inspiration sort of movement. And then we sort of came around and said, oh crap, like we we need ways to actually know that this is how it feels right. But how do we know that it's right? I would say in the last three to four years where I believe the impact investing ecosystem has really shown up is around the building impact measurement and management frameworks that are easy, relatively cheap and standardized. I have to remind my clients sometimes as someone who started off as a development practitioner that we have been dealing with versions of poverty since human, like since the beginning of human history. And for all of our sophistication, evolution, cognitive ability, to date, we have not figured out the five key metrics to figure out 
if someone has adequate quality of life, that, that we continue to want to solve deeply complex place-based problems. So when I think impact investing gets a little bit of a bad rep on like, well, how do you know if it's actually working? There is sort of this moment where it's like, nobody knows that it's working. But the key for us is to create measures and moments that confirm that you're making progress towards that goal. And I think that's the orientation that's key here. We're not actually looking for one or two of our clients to build a fund that in its paltry $50 million has figured out how to to provide clean water to uh, all of my old Bolivian neighbors. We are looking for people who have found a way to change the way that investment managers have made decisions that have leveraged their 50 million to pull together another 150 million to put it in a place where people are chronically ignored, where government now has to come to the table and talk about water rights because there are these private investors in their backyard trying to create access to water in a really organic way. We don't have much room or tolerance for behavior change, but I think ultimately that's what this work is about. This work is not about necessarily demonstrating that we've achieved all 17 SDGs and hurrah for us, pat on the back. It is about changing people's behavior in the largest, best capitalized system we have in the world. That, that to me is the, is, is the win here. So when we build impact measurement and management systems, they really do focus on behavior change through tactics like leverage. How much capital did you leverage? Tactics like onboarding and co-investment. Did you bring new unusual suspects into your investment product or portfolio? hiring in people from other walks of life that now are part of creating this ecosystem change, local impact. So how many local organizations have you actually pulled into this investment ecosystem? Leverage in all of its many forms, I think, is how we have decided to really focus on being able to deliver that impact. And what we ask of our clients is a commitment to allow us to build that for them. So using some of these best practices, these standards that I mentioned, the IMP, IRS, others like it, we're sort of... uh, uh, no longer giving ourselves an excuse to say that you can't do that. You can do that. You can do that. And here are the frameworks that every impact investor is trying their hardest, we hope, to move towards. The next frontier, I think, of this work is going to be about, so what does that mean? And I think for us, the answer to, so what does that mean is, who did you change along the way? So this work can be somewhat cerebral and cognitive, <laughs> obviously. Um, which in that in that environment, there is really no constant. I mean, it's always sort of a relative, like one thing's being measured against another thing on a relative yep. basis. And yep. I'm curious about you personally. I mean, yeah. how do you stay centered in that context, knowing that like, she's shit's always moving yeah. around me, right? Yeah. And then here you are as, uh, you know, uh, an embodied life force that's traveling through uh, on earth for a small part of time Yeah. Um, for your little intermittent moment. And you realize that there's a certain amount of disorientation that happens if one's merely spending their time just from their chin up. Yeah. And uh, I always like to ask people how, how they do it, because I know that I suffered a fair amount in my 30s and late 20s mm-hmm. uh, because I didn't have any um, tools or insights into how to sort of check the tyranny of the chin, all right, mm-hmm. the chin <laughs> up to some extent. So I'm curious about how you do it because I'm very adept and I'm in the semiotic realm. I mean, you, yeah. like, I mean, you swim well there, so, but I'm yeah. really curious on how you balance it out in the analog realm. Yeah. I mean, the, the honest answer for me was to 
was to marry somebody who's the opposite of me. I mean, it's just, I didn't, did not provide for myself. I sourced it out. This was a uh, <laughs> expertise versus acquisition decision in life. I um, it did. I found somebody who thrives in the moment. Uh, and that is, that is deeply healthy um, and refreshing for my very future oriented brain. Um, I mean, it, it, we're sort of coming full circle a little bit, but I think part of the reason why we decided to move to New Orleans was that uh, living in that cognitive realm just wasn't doing it anymore. And it's just so possible to get caught up in what you're doing and where you work and what your title is and all that kind of stuff. And I think one of the things that I absolutely adore about this town is that I am meeting people that I don't know that I would have if if I had stayed the course in either New York or DC. And so you, I think to survive in New Orleans and I'm, I am new still, so I don't, I haven't earned the right to say this. I think, I think to survive in New Orleans, you have no choice, but to go through this world humble. Uh, and I don't mean humble in terms of like, have, have a, have a self-awareness about yourself. I mean, a humble a humility in terms of what, you know, so you know, when I, when I go to a new bar here in town and I meet new people, nobody's asking me what I do for a living. Nobody cares. Uh, they're asking me how I spend my time. And I think uh, surrounding yourself with those kinds of people forces you to do crazy things. Like I spent my morning trying to figure out, you know, at 33, almost 34 years old, how the heck I joined a dance crew for Mardi Gras, which is never something that my normal, slightly achy body would have even considered in New York. What, what are you doing? You're going to embarrass yourself. It's just not, it's, it's just a totally different, it's a totally different definition of getting outside of your comfort zone. And I would, I would, I would consider our move to New Orleans as getting outside of our comfort zone. And so I think that there, there is really unique opportunity, I think, to continue to sort of challenge comfort at a personal level, which then challenges comfort at a professional level. I mean, truly, if I think about what impact investing success looks like. My hope for all of us is that impact investing doesn't exist in 25 years. It's done and dead because all investing has become impact investing. And nobody even knows the term in two generations from now. Nobody knows what I did. I come from a family of all doctors. So nobody already knows what I do. That continues, you know, and it's just, we, we fade into oblivion and that is a deeply healthy, (laughs) healthy and sobering thing to just say out loud to yourself that if we do this work correctly, uh, we won't matter. And there's some peace in that actually. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, you're working on, on, on your own irrelevance or, um, I mean, your own professional irrelevance. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, is there anything that, um, before we close, I want to give you a chance, um, to share, um, any thoughts or feelings that came up for you as a result of what was shared or what, what wasn't shared um, that, that you'd like to share with, um, you know, our audience. I appreciate the question. I think, um, maybe the only thing to say, um, and I, I, I really thought that, that you sort of thoughtfully provoked this in my own mind as we were chatting, but I think part of, part of what this work has gotten wrong, quite frankly, is to borrow from the innate tendency in the investments world to be um, insular and to be exclusive. So we created, you know, in an investment, in investments parlance, we created new languages uh, to be able to speak a secret language. We found 17 different words for money 
to be able to speak a certain language. We very clearly decided that this was going to be a small, predominantly fraternal community. And I think when impact investing was trying to find its footing, it copied some of that, the language, the jargon, the exclusivity, the training. And I think one of the things that's going to continue to make this work hard is a lack of awareness that um, if we are not deeply preoccupied with bridge building, it's not going to happen. And bridge building requires accessibility. And that's everything from language to intention. And you had asked a really great question about, you know, recon- reconciling power in, in the way that we think about this work. And I, I continue to sort of deeply admire colleagues who come to this work with zero pretense. There's so many of them. There's so many great people in the space, zero pretense, um, deep humility, and an awareness that if, if we don't bring more people to the center, we're actually going to totally lose the pulse. Um, so that was maybe the only thing to add that you actually sort of hinted at earlier that that really that deeply resonates with me in the spirit of future oblivion. I think that has to be <laughs> that has to be part of the equation too. Yeah, Rihanna, where can uh, people learn more about the work that you're doing? We have a website, and we've actually built a ton of free resources if you're new to impact investing. Uh, so we're at spectrum-impact.com. You can certainly check us out there. We've also got a um, totally free monthly newsletter where we blast all kinds of great resources, mostly from our peers. So on our website, you can subscribe to that net newsletter. And then I am on Twitter at Rahana Nathio, uh, and welcome any and all kinds of engagement, especially from people that are trying to figure out how to do this work. Oh, you're doing such wonderful work. Um, Thanks so much for uh, joining us on the Poetry of Impact podcast. It's just wonderful to hear your story. Thanks so much for elevating these stories. It's so important. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening in to today's conversation on the Poetry of Impact. The podcast exists for and because of listeners like you. Be sure to subscribe to the Poetry of Impact podcast on your favorite podcast player. And if you have time, leave us a review. Thanks again and goodbye for now. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast. For show notes and additional resources, visit poetryofimpact.com.